This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. What lessons can we learn from the lost Norse civilization of Greenland, which disappeared some 600 years ago, about adapting to environmental and socio-political changes in the 21st century Arctic? My name is Eric Paglia, and here on episode 11 of the podcast, we meet Professor Tom McGovern, an environmental archaeologist and a leading authority on the medieval North Atlantic, who's conducted extensive fieldwork and in-depth investigations into how Arctic societies responded to changing climates during the medieval warm period and little ice age of the previous millennium. I had a chance to speak with Professor McGovern at a Humanities for the Environment Circumpolar Observatory meeting in Sigtuna, Sweden, which was arranged by Professor Stephen Hartman, who also participates in the interview. I start by asking Tom to put his insights into historic Arctic societies within the context of contemporary climate change. The last 10 years or so, the Arctic has become very, very much an area of interest for, mm-hmm. for Raptors from both the region and also from all over the world. And given the, the decades of work we've done in the Arctic and subarctic, uh, North Atlantic, how can it inform the present and the future as the Arctic becomes an area of global interest? I think one of the things that everybody working in the North recognizes is that this is a place where climate change has happened many times. This one's different. Uh, it's much more intense. It's also clearly anthropogenic. Seeing things like the melting of the Greenland ice sheet, which has been frozen for 300,000 years, really flags up that all the climate has changed and changing constantly. This is new. This is different. This is extreme. Saying that, we do recognize that climate change that has happened in the North Atlantic with the onset of the Ice Age in the 1200s certainly challenged populations there in a way that they are now being challenged by warming taking place uh, in the same general area. So there's a lot we can learn in terms of what happens when you have abrupt climate change to populations that are local, to populations also who have these connections outside. Because climate change in the North Atlantic in the Middle Ages didn't just impact farms and fishermen in a local area, it also really impacted their ability to maintain trade connections with Europe. I mean, this is especially severe for Greenland, where the Greenlanders we know were very much engaged in trade with Europe, especially in walrus products, walrus ivory. And that trade looks more and more significant the more data we get. And yet, in the high Middle Ages, when the sea ice starts coming down between Iceland and Greenland, uh, that connection becomes very, very tenuous. And this is very bad news for them. So what we're seeing today is a situation where, paradoxically, the Arctic is being more open. You know, you're seeing much more commerce taking place straight across the pole. But this, too, also has a, you know, a certain number of risks. What's going to happen when the first big tanker hits a rock in the middle of the Arctic? You know, what's going to happen when the first big cruise ship runs ashore? It's only a matter of time. So those are some of the questions which I know other people have been dealing with as well. But you have these issues of long-term processes, catastrophic events coming together in unexpected ways. All this has happened in the past. So that in thinking about using the past as a, a template for what could happen in the future, uh, this is a lot of what we're all doing. This is what we're about. And the whole precept of historic ecology is very much the idea of making the past useful, making the past usable for people trying to control the, the future and get a sense of what's going on there. Because no one can see the future. But we can get a sense of what humans have done in the past, both in the Arctic and elsewhere, and what kinds of patterns that they have built up in terms of what we tend to do, you know, as a regular basis, the kinds of behaviors that are commonplace. You can count on people doing this pretty often. That's pretty rare. And so I think that we can get some sense of helping people build scenarios for better futures about trying to get a sense of what is likely to happen based on what has happened in the past. You know, thinking about pathways that people have gone down before. What are our deep, well-grooved, well-run pathways where people do that a lot versus exceptional things they rarely do? 
And if a, a better outcome for the future requires us to do something more exceptional, then we really have to get ourselves together and, and work hard to make that happen. Because the default setting may take us to places we don't want to go. And one of those places we don't want to go perhaps is, is this idea of tipping points. It will reach mm-hmm. a, a point where there'll be a, a rapid shift in some sort of social mm-hmm. regime. Is that something you've seen in the historical past in the Arctic? Well, certainly one of the things you can see in the Arctic is unintended consequences. People come in and they set themselves up with the idea that this is going to go on forever. I mean, Norse Greenland is famous as a case of collapse. It certainly is a good model for worst possible outcome. You know, everybody dies, as far as we can tell. So that probably happened pretty quickly at the end. I mean, we think what we're talking about probably is a final demographic crisis, possibly because of increased storminess. They lose too many of their active adults in what is, after all, a very small community. Uh, this is one of those tipping points that can push you over the edge. But we knew also that before they really go out somewhere after 1450 or so, their community had already been contracting. Some really nice work done by Christian Madsen and his colleagues in Greenland have come up with a, a chronology for both the expansion of Norse settlement in Greenland in the Viking Age and also their contraction after 1200. So they're, they're already shrinking by the time the final thing happens to them. So it's a case of seeing both gradual events that are wearing away to society's resilience and then a situation where sometimes, yeah, something does happen and you can go over that cliff. And of course, we're all concerned about threshold crossings, especially if the threshold is taken someplace we don't want to go. And I think that everyone in the world should be concerned about this. The North has been talked about as the global mine canary because things are happening very rapidly here, very visible. Uh, but change is happening in other parts of the world as well. And I think it's good to think that lessons from the North need to be applied elsewhere because sudden change we're seeing is coming elsewhere too. Rapid changes in sea ice, rapid changes in storminess, rapid changes in soil moisture and soil temperatures that are really changing people's lives and are having major impacts upon the heritage of the region, destroying lots of archaeology. These are all features that are happening in other parts of the world as well. And in some cases, almost as fast as they're happening in the North. So what's happening in the North is indeed a mine canary for the rest of the world in many respects. Thinking of the case of the Norse Greenlanders and the collapse of that society, of course there was contemporaneous society of Inuit, or the forerunners of the modern Greenlanders, who didn't collapse. Our interest lies not only in human environmental relations, of course, but in human-human relations in response to circumstances that we can learn from the past and apply it to the question of northern encounters. If you could just reflect a little bit more on that, especially in relation to the sped-up kind of encounters we're likely to be experiencing under modern environmental change in the Arctic. Also in terms of the global perspective, as far as uh, how different regions connect up with one another. Yeah, I mean, Norse Greenland is a, uh, is a good case, again, for thinking about issues of cultural contact and issues of sharing traits. Because with, with 2020 hindsight, we can see that a way out of the crisis the Norse found themselves in the uh, 14th and 15th centuries would have been to borrow more stuff from the incoming Thule Inuits. Things like toggling harpoons and skin boats and sea ice hunting gear. You know, we're pretty sure the Norse were not successful in hunting seals through the sea ice and did most of their hunting in the spring with harp seals coming in migratory. That was fine, up a bunch of seals, but it also meant that in the winter they didn't have an access to seals that the Inuit did. So again, with 2020 hindsight, it's easy to say, well, obviously, you know, pool your strategies, you know, get together, uh, share information, share knowledge, um, share some genes, you know, do the whole thing. And that actually is pretty much what happened several hundred years later when Scandinavians recolonized Greenland and very quickly uh, began to adopt at least some of the survival practices of the Greenlanders and, you know, traded guns for knowledge. 
So you had then this hybrid society which evolved into modern Greenland, which is a very vibrant society, a very successful society, is possibly a model for what could have happened in the Middle Ages between the Norse and the Thule. It didn't. As far as we can tell, there was really no successful interaction between the Norse and the Thule. Uh, so at least it certainly didn't result in any sharing on the Norse side. And also the genetic evidence which we have also suggests that people weren't getting married either. So there's some kind of barrier, and we don't really understand it, but we do recognize that in cultural contact situations, sometimes you know, the, the hybridization is great, everybody has a good time, it all works really well. In some cases you have hostile standoffs, and that may be what has happened, we don't really know for sure. We can see the outcome, and the outcome is the Norse, in a period of crisis, were unable to draw upon subsistence strategies, which certainly could have improved their chances for survival. So that's, to some extent, a self-inflicted wound. So one of the things to think about if we're thinking about the circumpolar zone, we have lots of cases where we have maritime hunter-gatherers, uh, some of whom uh, were supporting fairly large populations, some of whom were very socially simple and egalitarian, others of which were less egalitarian and had at least periods in which they engaged in warfare. So it's a complex pattern across the North, but it's also an interesting situation to look at the patterns of mobility and uh, dealing with changing climate by moving and by changing your society as you do so. And one of the problems the Norse, of course, had was they had a lot of fixed investment in places, farms, churches, all the sort of things that are hard to take with you. So I think that you're seeing the overall strategy for survival long-term on the millennial scale throughout the circumpolar zone has tended to have mobility at the core. And when the Norse sacrificed that, they got themselves into potentially a dangerous situation long-term. So I think, again, the thing to think about is throughout the circumpolar north, we are working very hard to sedentarize people and we have been for quite some time, make them tied down, you know, sixth minute spot. So all across Alaska, you now have villages often in places that are highly endangered by permafrost change and erosion, which the ancestors of these folks would have dealt with by simply moving. But now they're stuck. They have this all this investment and, of course, legislation, which makes it hard for you to, to leave. So you have the, the issues of thinking about the long-term history of the North as being one in which people who were flexible, who were mobile, who could take advantage of changing opportunities as well as threats. That's a long-term survival strategy which people really have to think about. I mean, one of the things which we have to think about globally, too, is the extent to which strategies of migration, of moving from places that are in real trouble to places that may be refuge zones, may, as a species, be something we have to rediscover. After all, we got to places like Greenland and Iceland, last settled place on Earth, by being highly mobile. And as a species, that's been our story, spreading out of Africa. So I think one of the things to think about if we're thinking about the modern world with all the migration taking place and this being seen often as a threat, uh, something has to be fought and dealt with and suppressed, um, that's the future. People will be moving. And the question is, how are you going to manage it? You know, are you going to do something like the 18th century situation in Greenland or the formation of a Matisse society where people are sharing all sorts of information back and forth and building themselves a better life? Or are you going to do the Norse Greenland and maintain, you know, cultural purity, if you will, and die? That was Professor Tom McGovern of Hunter College at the City University of New York. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.